You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by evolutionary biologist Darko Koteras in the Department of Integrative Biology. Actually, no more, right? Have you turned your dissertation in? Yeah. You've turned your dissertation in. Uh, you are pretty much a doctor. You're a doctor now. Yeah. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> the university thinks that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we all think that, so don't worry, Darko. And it's been a long, what, five years? Six, five and a half. Five and a half, so yeah. you got out easy, nice and easy. Well, I, I couldn't stay longer than, because I'm an international student, then there's the non-resident tuition. It becomes expensive. Ah, okay, so, yeah, I guess I've heard that international students have different requirements for how long they can stay. No, it's the there's a non-resident tuition, which after three years of your quals, uh, then you have to pay that. Okay, so it's different than like uh, some of the Brazilians have like a certain amount of time they're required to be here and then they go home. That's different. Yeah, maybe that's related with their scholarship if they have something from their country. But you're not Brazilian. No, I'm from Chile. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. Uh, and you've been you've definitely been around the world, so we'll talk about some of that stuff, but. How did you get started? How how did you get involved in science back in Chile? I really always liked biology. My my parents are microbiologists. They work in biotechnology uh, at the university. And since I was a kid, I, I will talk with them about the, what they were doing with the bacteria or in the lab. They will take me to the lab, uh, put me in the microscope and watch little things. So it, it has been science and biology in particular has been always very close to, to me and my family. Especially playing in the garden of my house, I I spend a lot of time out there, like looking little animals, roly polies, snails, flowers, plants, and I was always very amazed about how diverse it was in terms of size, color, shape. So my interest in biology, I think, I, I think I always have had it, and that's why I started my undergrad in biology in Chile. I, I studied at the Universidad de Chile. During my time as an undergrad, I took many, many courses, explored very different things. But from the beginning, I was very interested in neurobiology and evolutionary biology, those two things. I took many courses related with both areas. And towards the end of my undergrad, I kind of decided to focus more in evolutionary biology. After that, I did a master's in ecology and evolution at the same university, working in evolutionary developmental biology which I thought was a very cool field because it combines cell biology and molecular biology with zoology and evolution. So I did my dissertation working on that in, in evolution of gene networks involving mm. appendage development. So I was comparing which are the genes, or more than the genes itself, like the interaction between genes related with the production of appendages like legs, fins, in arthropods and vertebrates, in particular the zebrafish. Okay. So first I I work on reconstruct those gene networks based on, on literature review and after that use the networks to compare expression and predict what should be expressed in one organism based on what I learned from the other. And can you just tell us tell the audience what an arthropod is? Oh sorry. No, it's no problem. Uh, arthropods are bugs. Nice. Any any kind of bug. So they have lots of appendages to think about then. Right. Yeah. Um, did you do any sort of, was this all lit review or did you do any sort of lab work where you manipulated oh, sh appendages? Sure, sure. So my master at the beginning was literature review to build the network. So based on 
an experiment. So usually in developmental biology, it's not, it's very nice to work because papers will be, oh, we studied this gene that is expressed on this tissue from this time to this time. So really quickly, you can acquire the basic and more relevant information of what they're dealing with. And so at the beginning, I, I build a network based kind of getting that data. And after that, I will have two gene networks, one for the fly and one for the fish. Uh, after doing a little bit of bioinformatics to make sure that I was capturing all the genes that were important, I will see both networks and realize, well, that's not my realization. Like people know about that for a long time. That's, that's why I started working on that. That many genes, many signaling pathways are common and shared. But there are others that don't seem to appear in both cases. So I say, okay, if the if in the fly gene A active gene B, and in the fish there is some data that gene A is present, the natural question is what happened with B. So, based on my two networks, I will start planning experiments with different kinds of uh, certainty on how much information or background information I had. Each network had like 50 genes total, had like 13 good candidates that could or could not be expressed. Then I did experiments for like seven, uh, something called in situ hybridization. So it's a way to detect when the the gene will be expressed. I found some genes expressed in other tissues and a couple expressed actually in the in the fin of the fish. I, I use the fish as an experimental model. And those two genes that I found were related with the same signaling pathway. So then I looked for a third gene also really with that pathway, but not only the the messenger RNA, which is what tells you that something will be expressed, but I'll look for the protein, which is once the, the gene is actually translated or formed into a functional macromolecule. And I also found that macromolecule. So using kind of like a really broad screening protocol, I narrow it down to one gene pathway. So I got experimental data showing that that pathway was also important in the in the, in the vertebrate, and it was present on the on the fly. And then, that, and then what did you do with that information? Well, um, in this particular case, I was interested in seeing how much of the gene architecture was conserved in the formation of this structure between these two very different lineages, and that is interesting on itself because there's no fossil evidence that the ancestor of vertebrates and invertebrates had appendages. There is this big hypothesis called the Erbilatheria, which is an hypothesis that came from the field of developmental biology mostly, where people realized that many genes in extremely distant organisms in the tree of life seem to have similar functions, even if there's no data that the ancestor had that structure. For example, PAC6 expressed in eyes, Thinman in heart, the Hox genes related with segmentation, distalless related with appendage. So my, my work is framing that conceptual. It isn't that conceptual framework. So basically, I I put together more information that could or could not support this hypothesis. In the case of my work, it seems that it's supported. It supports the hypothesis that the ancestor did have this shared gene or... At least the gene machinery. The gene machinery, because then it you see it in these different groups that evolved over many years. So it must have been really important as well if it would evolve so long ago and then stick around. Right, right. So the interesting thing is that it tells us that the that uh, the ancestor had the the capability or 
the, the tools to build those structures, but we don't know if it actually had them. And based on the fossil record that we have, there's no evidence that those structures were present. Is there a fossil record for invertebrates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty extensive. Yeah, even little bugs? Yeah, even little bugs. Oh, what part of the world do they find most of those fossils? That goes a little bit beyond my expertise, mm. but it depends on how old. For example, I know in the Baltic Sea and in Dominican Republic, there are a lot of uh, fossils that are preserving amber, like the ones in Jurassic Park. Mm. In other areas of the world, you can find fossils on rock. Um, the group of spiders that I'm studying right now has one fossil in the Florissant beds in Colorado. But I don't know if there is like a hotspot for fossils of insects. Yeah. So you're studying spiders now, that's what you said. Yeah. You, you didn't get far from that backyard looking at bugs, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's not a real question. It's okay. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about these spiders? I know they have a cute little name. At least the one you call them. Right, the Hawaiian happy face spider. Hawaiian happy face. Although, to be fair, most people are happy face when they're in Hawaii, right? Right. <laughs> so just to link with the previous question, what I did for my master was evolutionary developmental biology. But during the time that I'm working, I was working on that, uh, and actually towards the end of my undergrad, I became very interested in evolutionary biology, as I said. But in particular, I discovered that the, the world that happened on islands is very interesting on itself. That because of an internship that I did with a professor in Chile who, and I was working with, an, with a grad student. She was studying diversification of a group of lizards in comparing populations from the continent and the islands in southern Chile. And that got me into the literature of what happened on islands. And it's very interesting. It, islands are like natural experiments of evolution and ecology. Why, why is that? Because they have a lot of particularities in comparison to the nearby continental areas. Those particularities are related with um, weather conditions, how the community of organisms is formed. In the case of volcanic islands, it's like doing a reset on the, on the ecosystem because at the beginning there's nothing, there's just water, and then the volcano appears in the middle of the ocean and you have like bare lava. So that the process of colonization starts from scratch. But the colonization is not random. It's determined by who can make all the way to the island. So that creates very unique dynamics, but at the same time, dynamics that can show you more general patterns. So we can learn about things that happen in the continent by looking at islands as a more simplified system in some aspects and more complex in others. So I started learning about that and I thought, wow, wow, this is really cool. And if I want to do evolutionary biology, looking island systems is a privileged area where I can explore these kind of questions. I finished my undergrad and then I wanted to move. I wanted to do a PhD abroad because I kind of want to have the experience of going to another country. And, and I realized that since I finished my undergrad, the closest time that I can start my PhD was at least a year and a half. So in the meantime, I did the master's and I already had some experience working in the a developmental biology lab because of, um, of, a, of another internship that I did. And I was very excited about that field, developmental biology, evolutionary developmental biology. So I decided to work on that, but knowing that my interest was in a long-term, let's say in the PhD, transition towards studying island systems. So that's how I 
end up alive to several places among those here at Berkeley. And my original interest was to work with the Hawaiian happy face spider. So a little bit long introduction to, to reach the, the, the animal. <laughs> and what I wanted to do was to see the, the genetic mechanisms or, or the developmental mechanisms that create this color variation that gives the name of the spider. So the spider is a tiny little yellow animal it has a sort of like a smiley face on the abdomen. The abdomen is the back part of the animal. And it's extremely variable. So there are at least 20 vari variations, some of them with a happy face, some of them completely red, some of them yellow, some others with black spots. And I, I, I thought, well, it would be very interesting to see which genetic mechanism is creating all this diversity. And that's what brought me to here. But at the same time, while I was here, I started learning about other things, things called phylogenetics and population genetics. The first one kind of tells you what are the relationships among different species, so like creating a tree, a genealogic tree. And population genetics is pretty much what you will see in when you're watching like a National Geographic documentary and you see, oh, humans moved from Africa to here, and then the population was very small. So the tools that allows scientists to say that are basically population genetics tools. In part, there are other things too, of course. But So uh, I learned about all those things that I knew about them, but never worked with them. And I thought that for the PhD, I would like to focus on those tools. Doing evolutionary biology on a non-model organisms is extremely non-trivial and it's very difficult. On the other hand, I have all this suite of genomic and statistical methods that I didn't know about. So I thought, well, if I try to do everything, it's going to take me forever. So you need to pick something. And that's how I decided to shift towards working more in phylogenetics. And I end up still working with Hawaiian spiders, with another, but with another group, not the happy face. Mm. So if I can tell you about Hawaiian spiders, I can tell you more about the Tetragnatha spiders, the long jaw spiders. Yes, but first I'll say you're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. This is The Graduates. My name's Tesla Munson. Today I'm speaking with evolutionary biologist Darko Koteras, talking now about phylogenetics of the Hawaiian happy face and other spiders. So uh, please tell us about these other spiders. What did you call them? Tetragnathans? Tetragnatha, or the long jaw spiders. Long jaw? Long jaw. Like... Oh, long jaw. Okay. Jaw. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, don't <laughs> apologize. So my dissertation work was focused on these, these other group. And... The kind of question that I try to address or that I address were related with the, what's the temporal dynamic of species production. This group is very interesting because in Hawaii, you can find around 37 species at described. There are even more. It's pretty much 11% of the world's diversity in this tiny archipelago. That brings up the question like, why? What happened there that creates so many species of this group? And not only that, you, there are two main subgroups within the Hawaiian Tetragnatha, one of them that spins web, which is a very sim which is something very similar to what all Tetragnatha around the world do. But there is another one that doesn't spin web anymore. They are active hunters in the forest, which is something very unique. But not only that, they're active hunters and the, their colors match their background. So you have the green spider that lives under the leaves, the big brown in bark, the small brown on twigs, the maroon that lives on, on moss. But those colors, at the same time, those colors evolve more or less independently on different islands. So there are several things that happen to this group, make them, making them very unique and a 
kind of like a privileged situation where you can ask questions about convergent evolution. So when things evolve repeatedly, changes in their ecology. So going from web spinners to active hunters and also long distance dispersals, how things get to islands and how the landscape affect their population structure and related with that, the species production. And that's what I was doing. So I was looking the young island, so the big island of Hawaii, and the middle-aged island group of Maui Nui, so Maui, Lanai, Molokai, and Kaolabe, but I didn't work in Kaolabe, of course. And I was studying how the landscape affects the production of new species, in particular, how the volcanoes in the islands can produce population structure on a young island, let's say the big island, and how that eventually will form new species that you will expect to find on a middle-aged island group as Maui Nui. So in order to, to test that, I did uh, population genetics using Sanger sequencing, which is a more traditional method, and exon capture, which is a method that uses another strategy of sequencing called next generation sequencing. That is a sort of like a high throughput uh, way to get a ton of data. That's yeah. So when you say that the how the landscape affects population structure, do you mean because there's like forests on one side of the volcano, or it's like more rainfall on the other side of the volcano? What what do you mean by that? Right. So one way to produce a species is by just separating populations. If you have one single population that is that where all individuals can mix, that could be kind of like a evolutionary unity. But then if there is a, a river in between or a mountain range, those organisms won't be able to reproduce with each other. So I was looking how the volcanoes itself can produce barriers to disperse, or more than various. The habitat where these spiders live, the montane rainforest, really doesn't occur all the way down to the lower elevation. So basically, each volcano can be considered an island. So we have a system with islands within islands. And I was trying to see if each volcano was actually a separate unit to the one nearby. And what, what did you find? Can you give us, now that your dissertation's in, you can give us the highlights, right? <laughs> well, the... Uh, the, the system is not as simple as that. It never is. Right. <laughs> and what happened is that more important than the separation between volcanoes is the continuity of rainforest. Because many, in, if you see the, the big island of Hawaii, in the windward side, in the wet side, there are several volcanoes right next to each other if you go north to south. And between those volcanoes, there is a sort of like a belt of rainforest. And that becomes a unity, even if uh, the volcanoes are different, even if they have different ages. So what seems to be more relevant in structuring populations is the rainfall patterns. And that's something that has been shown previously for Drosophila. And when you see the plant diversity, it's also suggested by, by that. Uh, well, continuity of rainforest, that's definitely something we hear about in uh, today's conservation-minded right. science, right? Right. Um, well, that sounds pretty fun. So you get to hang out on Hawaii, huh? Yeah, well, as long as I can get grants to go there. <laughs> yeah, but you must, you must have done a lot of work there. Is that just involved like traipsing through the forest and yeah. looking for spiders? Like every so, kid's dream? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, so the, the field work is, is just what you described. 
well, first is getting the money to go there, which is not trivial. Getting permits, because a lot of the land, pretty much all the land where I work is preserved, either by private organizations, federal land, state land. So going through all the regular procedures to ask per, for permission, submit uh, documentation, uh, lay, after the work, submit reports. So going going over all that process. And once that when all of that is set, it's the, the fun part, if you want, when you go to the forest. And the spiders that I study, they are more active at night. So I spend a little bit of the time during the day, and then I stay in the forest after sunset and keep collecting with a flashlight. Some forests are easier to access than others. Some of them you can park your car and walk inside the reserve. Others you need a four-wheel drive to go there. In a couple of cases, I need a helicopter to go there. Wow. So it's, it's very variable. And the logistics involved in going to different sites also vary enormously. Some cases you can just go by yourself. In other cases, you really need to contact someone from a conservation agency or the state who can bring you to that place. And is that because it's dangerous or because you get lost? I mean, it's Hawaii, so you don't really have to worry about like big animals at night, right? Yeah, no, I think Hawaii is kind of the safer place to work in terms of um, disease or poisonous animals. There's nothing really that can hurt you. There are big animals but because they're introduced like pigs, but pigs are, I mean, as long as you make noise, they escape from humans. <laughs> So yeah, you you, re- you really need someone to bring you there because, um, yeah, I don't know. Some, sometimes the, there are gates or, or or the trail is not very obvious. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I definitely want to hear, because I heard this at your finishing talk, but I want to hear uh, for, for the audience, can you tell us about your trip to Easter Island? Because that's got to be like a dream for so many people. Right. <laughs> Easter Island. Right. <laughs> that's the one with the big heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, the, uh, the most isolated place in the world. Really? It's actually like the furthest away? Yeah, it's the, it's the, the island that is more, it's, it's the most, it's the point that is more far for any continental mass land. Wow. Or, or, or a group of islands. So, so Hawaii is also pretty isolated, but you have an archipelago. And Easter Island is a single one. And uh, you fly there then? Right. So Easter Island uh, is, is very well connected. It's very isolated geographically, but not in terms of access. So there are flights pretty much every day and during the summer twice a day, I think. And it's off the coast of Chile, right? Right. It's 3,500 kilometers off the coast of Chile. 4,500 from Tahiti. In between Tahiti and Israel, and there are the Pitcairn Islands. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty remote. Uh, I went there uh, sponsored by the Center of Latin American Studies here at Berkeley. And I did a, a joint expedition with other colleagues from Chile, from the Instituto de Entomología the, of the Universidad Metropolitana de Ciencias de la Educación. And the reason to go there is... Well, Israel is a very interesting place because all the cultural history that happened over there. But at the same time, as the most remote place, it brings up the question, where, what kind of animals and plants made all the way over there to the most remote place? I don't even know how humans made it there. Right. Let alone, like, spiders. What? Uh, interestingly for me, the only ever recorded endemic spider is a spider from the group that I was studying. 
What does endemic mean? Oh, yeah. Endemic means that it only lives there. You cannot find it anywhere else. So that became, that turns Rapa Nui immediately a very attractive place for me. Because there was this spider that could be a colonizer from the the Western Pacific or from South America. If there is a place in Polynesia that there was South American introduction, or more than introduction, natural colonization, that would be Easter Island. It's the closest. And there, there was some data also that, for example, the palm tree that now is extinct, but the endemic palm from Easter Island, morphologically at least, looks more similar to the Chilean palms than to the other Polynesian palms. So, yeah, probably could come from from the from the east. And how would it do that? By air or like floating on a branch or what? So, um, there are many ways of dispersal. The animals that I studied, these long just spiders, they do something called ballooning. Basically, they fly. They do kite surf. Not kite surf, really. It's, yeah, well, it's kind of kite surf. They, they will start spinning web towards the air at some point from a high from a high elevation place. And then they get caught on wind wind currents and then they literally just fly. There are these experiments in the 60s where people will put giant entomological nets, those kind of like uh, butterfly cutting nets. And they put that on a, on a boat coming from Asia to North America. And they will check the net to see if there was something there. And they were able to find stuff. The spiders that I study, the group Tethagnatha, is one of the most commonly found groups on these aerial plankton. And how long could, would it take to fly? I mean, they can just survive flying around? I don't know. That's crazy. I no clue. I mean, if you think, it's probably an extremely unlikely event. Uh, the odds of dying in the way are huge. But you just need one pregnant female to arrive. Because if you, if you hope that two, a male and a female will make it to the island and they will see each other. And <laughs> that's very unlikely. So probably the colonization happened through an Eve. Yeah. Probably. That's that's unknown. But So that's that's basically the biological reason to go there. Uh, once we went there with my colleagues, we stayed for three weeks uh, working on the island. And it was too risky to go and just try to collect one single spider that other arachnologists who visited the island didn't, haven't found. So we did a broad survey of the arthropods, a really terrestrial invertebrate. So we collected land snails, insects, and spiders. And luckily for me, I was able to find one spider that be- belonged to the genus that I was interested in. So at the beginning I said, well, great, <laughs> there's something to work with. But the previous arachnologists from Belgium described that a very commonly distributed a circumtropical species was living on the island. So I, my first thought was like, well, I found the same species that he found. But after coming back to the lab and looking more carefully at the morphology, it was pretty clear for me and for my advisor, who is an expert on the group, Professor Rosemary Gillespie, it was pretty clear for us that the spider that I found this time wasn't the, the one that the previous arachnologists mentioned. So that says the question, well, what is this? And trying to look for in the literature for other Pacific species or other species from the continent, the answer wasn't really clear. So now I'm working with DNA sequencing to try to figure out to what is closely related 
in order to try to get the answer through that route. Interesting. Um, well, we're actually coming up on the end here, so I want to ask, though, before we end, do you have any any advice you'd give to students or any uh, you know anything you really want to say to the public? Oh, that sounds pretty broad. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, now's your chance to wave some hands, wax poetic, you know, things scientists don't do normally. Right. Okay, yeah, I, I have an idea. During my PhD, I was fortunate enough to visit many uh, remote places and see very unique forms of life. But at the same time, I was able to see how that very unique forms of life are threatened by direct human actions or by more global effects as climate change. Uh, one time, I was with a group from the University of Hawaii hiking down a slope of Mauna Kea. At some point, we started at a beautiful rainforest. Then, 100 meters down in elevation, it was a beautiful rainforest with a little bit of invasive species. It's a strawberry guava in this case. A little bit down, only strawberry guava, and that all the way down. All the native forests disappear, including the insects and spiders and birds, etc. I asked the other researchers what happened at this intermediate elevation where there were just a few strawberry guavas, and they all happened to be young. And the answer was, that's the front of the invasion. It's just a matter of time. That forest that you saw at the middle elevation is going to be gone in a few years from now. And there's nothing we can do. That was very shocking for me because I was there. I was able to see many endemic animals, but in some way they were condemned. There's nothing you can do. In the past, humans did, we have done some actions that will have consequences, probably not immediately, but in a few years. Even if we change our way of life today, some areas will be irremediably affected. So keeping that in mind, you realize how critical is the situation that we're experiencing right now. It's not a matter of saying, okay, starting tomorrow, we're all going to change our way of life and the planet will be fine. Even if we do that, which probably is not going to happen, it's too late for many areas. So that makes me realize how extreme is the situation where we are. That probably is worse than what that we think. So if I have to kind of deliver a message, I, I don't want to be alarmist, but I want to say that we have to take more serious than what we are doing right now, the environmental crisis that, we're, that we are entering. Not only because how it's going to affect us as humans, but I think there are some ethical reasons to share the plant with other animals, other plants. It's, it's very uh, selfish to think that you can do whatever you want. And just because the other organisms cannot protest, you, you have the right to destroy where they live. That... Yeah, no, that, I think you said it really well. And we, we hear it a lot here on The Graduates. It's definitely an issue of concern, this, this environmental crisis that we're in. So I'm glad that you got to see you are, we are privileged in so many ways being able to go see these really unique places and these unique animals. And um, yeah, and so we're the lucky ones in some ways. Yeah, and, 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 and I would like to emphasize that in many cases, uh, I, I've been talking about the way of life because in many cases when you see people talking, oh, renewable energies or things like that, that's great. But I have the sense that in many, many times the message is, oh, as long as you buy this uh, energy efficient light, 
you can keep doing things business as usual, which doesn't change the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the overconsumption. And that's what it has to change. It's not about buying like electric cars and keep driving everywhere. It's not about like doing compost, but keep flying all around the world for, for fun. Those are the things that have to change. Yeah, and when you see the consequence, it's terrifying. If those, those things don't happen, it's terrifying what will happen. Yeah. Well, I hate to leave it like that, but I think we're going to. <laughs> it's a true message for you out there. So uh, take heed, audience. Uh, this has been another amazing episode of The Graduates here on KLX. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I've been joined by evolutionary biologist Darko Kotaras, who has finished his Ph.D. here at Berkeley on to bigger and better things and uh, still hopefully outside enjoying the environment, enjoying all the different islands. I wish I could be there with you, to be honest. <laughs> but um, thank you again for coming on the show today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. And we'll be back in another two weeks with more of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley.